Voyage. This podcast contains discussions of prisoner of war experiences and suicidal ideation. Listener discretion is advised. Hope you all are well. It's very warm here. Uncle Sam's Country Club has us fixing roads and building airfields. They let us watch movies from time to time. All in all, I have to admit, it's kind of nice. I think of you all and wish we were together. Charles. Charles was captured by the Japanese during World War II and went through a nightmarish odyssey to try and survive that captivity, an experience of unimaginable horror. It would take an incredible strength of spirit if he was going to make it out alive. My father had no way of knowing what was coming for him, the horror he'd have to go through and how difficult it would be to survive. I think what it boiled down to is he was protecting us. I've noticed in other areas in his life where he did that, and that's the only thing I can think of as to why he would do that. This is Susan Hearn. Her father served in the U.S. Army during World War II. He was very reluctant to speak about his experiences. As a general rule, he would not talk about it to anyone. And I, I pleaded with him to, you know, I said, at least record, like at that point it was cassettes. I said, record on cassettes save them, put them away. I promise you I won't listen to them until after you're long gone. And he wouldn't even do that. I think he wanted everything that happened to him die with him. So I, I think over time we just learned it's probably better not to bring it up. But Susan was always curious and understood from a young age that her father was unique from other fathers, even from other war veterans. I know when I was three that I knew that he was in the war because he brought home a, um, I guess, a Japanese saber. And um, I remember seeing that. And I just, I always knew that my dad had been in the war, World War II. When I was three and four, um, when he would have his nightmares, I learned how to wake him up. He, um, you have to start at the feet and just gently touch him and just call out his name saying, you know, Dad, it's Susan, it's Susan, you know, it's okay, you know, you're here, you know, and, and then he gradually started to wake up. But if you went right up to him and shook him, oh, he'd come after you. I would see other families where they didn't have to be so careful around their father, but we had to be. Susan also understood implicitly there was something wrong in how men like her father were remembered by their own country for their service. My dad received a bronze star. It was an 82 or 83. And they mailed it to him. And I thought, oh, gee, that's, you know, you get a bronze star, you should have a ceremony or something. I, I thought that was kind of disappointing how they were presented to the POWs. And at that point, I thought, well, if I ever have time, I'm going to really look into this and find out everything I can. Well, what do you know? Ten years later, I was um, diagnosed with MS. I couldn't work at that point, and I had all this time on my hands, so I just went on the internet and started reading. 
um, joining whatever I could, organizations, you know, asking questions, sending for stuff, researching, talking to other people. I collected quite a bit. I think I, I have a general idea of what he went through. Of course, you can't know the psychological things he he felt, but I I know where he's been and you know and and what he had to do. I just started googling. I started googling Japanese POWs. I would Google the prison camps that I knew he was in. Um, anything and everything. You know, I started talking to relatives. Um, and the more I read, the some nights I'd, I'd lose track of time. I'd be up till four or five in the morning reading. And I talked to my mom. And I'm like, Mom, do you, do you know this happened? You know, are you aware, you know, that this, this was going on? And she didn't even know some of the stuff that, that I found out. And I, I found pictures. I found, you know, diagrams of the camp. And then... The more I researched, the more people I found who I could talk to, more historians. I joined organizations. I asked them and their members questions. And it's just been a big research project. I wanted to understand my father. I I never, never could understand why he was the way he was. He was very um, territorial. Every house we ever moved in, he would put a fence up around, right on the property line. Um, very clean man. He, he was a coal miner. That man went to the coal mines with pressed clothing. He would come out, you would never know that's where he'd been. He'd have dress slacks on, the, the nicest polished shoes, you know, white shirts. You would never know. And he had a... He just hated flies. If there was a fly in our house, everything stopped till that fly was dead. I later found out that um, the flies were a big problem in the camp. Not only did they gather on the the corpses of the men who were died, but um, they would collect them. And but they were like huge, like huge flies. His name was Charles Hearn. He was born in 1920. He was born in Brady, West Virginia. I believe it was a very small mining camp. His his father was a coal miner also. According to the National Park Service's West Virginia Mine Wars series, from 1912 to 1921, coal miners in West Virginia attempted to unionize, leading to the West Virginia Mine Wars and an actual battle, the Battle of Blair Mountain, between an anti-union sheriff, his citizen army, and pro-union miners. In 1922, the state of West Virginia, working with the coal companies, indicted over 500 pro-union miners on charges of treason. To put it plainly, being a coal miner in West Virginia was not for the faint of heart. And they didn't have a whole lot. He did say at one point that he was embarrassed because his there was nine kids in his family and his mom didn't have money to buy him shoes to go to school with. So he was very embarrassed. He couldn't go to school with shoes on. His father, 
He was killed in 1929 when my dad was almost nine years old. But after that, his mother took all of her children, including my dad, to live near her parents so they could help care, care for the kids because there were so many of them. Charles's father was killed in the coal mines when a mule kicked the roof of the mine, causing it to collapse. I, I can't imagine being a, a single mother back then, a, a widow who had nine kids and no way to feed them. They were kicked out of the company house because he was no longer employed by the mine. So they had nowhere to go. They had no money. Uh, he enlisted July 10th, 1940. But he, he just said, you know, I, I figure I'm going to get drafted, so I might as well choose what I get drafted into. Yeah, so he chose the army. Yeah, and he enlisted so that um, to provide mother, money for his mother and his siblings. Any bit of money he earned was sent directly back to her to help. He enlisted at uh, Fort Hayes in Ohio. They were set to Fort Belleville, or however you say it, um, for basic training. Um, they were being trained as engineers how to uh, repair roads and bridges and build airstrips. And they only had one day of weapons training, just one day. And um, after that, um, where was he set to? Oh, they were sent on a train out to California. He ended up at um, Fort McDowell. And they took them over to Angel Island and for more training at that point. And then from there, they got on the ships to go out east to the Pacific. Manila. This was all brand new territory for Charles, who had lived a simple life and never traveled much. Well, when they got to the West Coast, Dad wrote a letter home to his mother. He said, you know, you know they've given me new pants and shoes and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, and we're going to Alaska. He thought they were going to Alaska, but oh no. <laughs> they turned east and went, and went to the Pacific. Yeah, and he went from mountains to, to island life. And oh, sure, it's very different. And he never, <laughs> he never liked the beach again in his life. He, he wouldn't go to the beach. He, I used to live in Stamford, Connecticut. I'm like, Dad, I want you to I want you to go to the beach with me. I want you to see where I go. <laughs> I took him out into into the beach in Stamford. He stood on the um, boardwalk. He wouldn't go in the sand, and it's all because of over there on the islands. He just doesn't want to have anything to do with it. In the Philippines, Charles' peaceful service was interrupted when the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy attacked. you figure. For what? Until help comes? Shit, I don't know. Too long. But they gotta be coming, right? Of course. MacArthur's here. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Charles. Earl. Where are you from, Earl? Florida. Because, I mean, it's not like we're set up for this, you know, so they gotta come. Let's see about surviving until tomorrow. And then we can worry about who's coming. Got a lady back home? Yeah. 
Married? Engaged. Is she pretty? <laughs> yeah. What's your name? Josephine. Huh. You call her Joe? No, I call her Josephine. What's she look like? Damn, man, why? You'd rather sit here and listen to the bombs? Alright. She's short. She's got brown hair. That's what she looks like. <laughs> if she could hear you, she'd call up the engagement today. How's that? Tell me what she looks like. You know, not to a cop in a lineup, to you. She's got a nice smile. She's got some sway to her. Her hair is long. She puts it in curls if she hasn't seen me in a while. She likes to wear red dresses. Likes people to know she's there. Not that anyone could miss her. Okay. Congratulations, Earl. The wedding's back on. I'm glad we have your blessing. <laughs> Going on an hour now. Officer's Club is a hole in the ground now. Really? Damn. Where are we gonna drink to victory, then? <laughs> Charles, we'll find a place. They issued rifles at this point and basically said, you know, take this, you're gonna need it. You know, and here's he, is, you know, he's really not trained on how to use this thing. I'm not even sure they found out that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. They were just handed it and handed weapons and said, you know, you're going to need these. You know, you got to remember, this is early 40s and communication wasn't what it is now. But I read that they were at lunch and they kept seeing all of these Japanese airplanes go over. And soon after lunch is when they issued them their weapons. And then the bombing started. Dad, from what I have read, was only one of 300 who escaped from Bataan to Corregidor, which is, which is a small island off of the peninsula. And Dad was only about one of 300 who managed to get over to Corregidor. I mean, they were, they were put on half rations on Corregidor, then it went down to quarter rations. They were eating anything they could they could basically kill. So these men were like weak from the get-go. I mean, they, they just had no nutrition over there. You hear he left? MacArthur? Yeah, last night. Well, on the bright side, word is they're sending us more food. Those ships didn't make it. I was supposed to be in Alaska. Hey, what about you? What about me? What does your lady look like? Doesn't look like anything. I don't have one waiting for me. Who do you have? My mama. <laughs> you don't have to tell me what she looks like. <laughs> Canaries. Say what now? We're canaries. What the hell's that mean? Well, back in the day, a canary was carried into the mine to check for poisonous gases. If the canary died, danger was imminent, and it wasn't safe to go into the mines. What are you saying? I'm saying no one cries over the canaries. No reinforcements yet. MacArthur left. 
You think they're just leaving us to get blown up? They're not bombing West Virginia. If I'm Roosevelt, I'm not hearing these bombs all night. Canaries. We'll surrender if it comes to that. You want to? Not particularly. What do you think they'll do to us? What would we do to them? No help was coming. In Linda Goetz Holmes' book, Guests of the Emperor, she notes that within six months of the attack on Pearl Harbor, 78,000 American and Filipino men had either been killed or captured by Japanese forces. The men on Bataan surrendered on April 9th of 1942. The soldiers on Corregidor would surrender on May 6th. My understanding was it was pretty much a mess, very confusing, confusing, no one knew what to do. So more or less, if you saw a Japanese soldier, you surrendered to him. They take them down to an area on Craigador called the 92nd Garage. Craigador is kind of shaped like a tadpole, and in the center, it's, um, you know, ocean level, but it's, it has a great, an enormous concrete slab on it, which was used to repair things by people who lived there, and it was called the 92nd Garage for whatever reason. They took all of these people who surrendered and who had nothing and put them down on a concrete slab under tropical sun for days. I mean, there was there was there was no escape from the heat, you know, from the, the glare of the sun. No one had water. They they brought in one water source, and it was just like a trickle. So it was just really bad. And then at that point, my dad and another man were used as mules by the Japanese to pull a cart from one side of Corregidor to the other, and they actually use whips like they do with the animals. Like if you weren't going fast enough, you know, giddy up, giddy up. And then eventually they were put on, I guess they were cargo ship. What my father would endure on that ship is something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. On the next episode of Letters from My Father, Things go from bad to worse for Charles, as he must survive a nightmarish journey, only to reach an even more nightmarish destination. That's next time. Letters from My Father is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Garrick Dion, and Dan Benamore. Executive produced by Susan Hearn. Written and directed by Dan Benamore, based on the research of Susan Hearn. The novel cited in this podcast is Guests of the Emperor, The Secret History of Japan's Mukden POW Camp, written by Linda Goetz Holmes, starring Jack Quaid as Charles and John Cahill as Earl. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by Nick Misidi. Original music by Darlis Gonzalez. If you are a veteran in need of mental health support, you can always text or call 988 for the Nationwide Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes.